Hey everybody, good afternoon, and I say afternoon because we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon after Sunday has come and gone. We had some issues, technical issues, and so we wanted to spend a few moments recording this sermon for you. So if you weren't able to be here or you wanted to listen again, your heart can hopefully be encouraged and blessed by the Word of God. We're in week two of our series called Journeys, which is in the latter part of the book of Acts. We uh, preached a portion of Acts several weeks ago uh, called um, in, in, uh, Empowered, and then we went through the middle part of the book of Acts, and it was called Shift, and now we're in the latter part, and it's called Journeys. And it's called Journeys for really obvious reasons. If you read the book, uh, a call from God came upon Paul and Barnabas, and they answered the call, and they began literally traveling the world with the gospel. Therefore, we're calling this Journeys. Um, in this first journey that Paul and Barnabas were on, they traveled about 1,500 miles, which for us today, hopping in the vehicle, loading up the kids, and going to Florida uh, for vacation doesn't sound too bad when you got your leather seats and your air conditioning, and you pop on a DVD in the back for the kids. But when you're talking about traveling 2,000 years ago uh, by foot and by boat, it was definitely challenging. Well, as Paul and Barnabas travel and they're meeting with people and introducing themselves with people and more importantly in introducing the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, God blesses. People are saved and following Jesus. People are healed. Um, but not everyone enjoys this message of Jesus. Not everyone enjoys hearing about um, the story and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in several cities that Paul and Barnabas were in, mobs actually formed and shoved them out of town and said, get out of here, don't ever come back. And in one city, a mob actually stones Paul to the point they think that he's dead, and they leave him for dead, but God restores his health and brings him back, and he is up and going again. And so just intense stuff going on as they are traveling around the world. And where we're going to be today uh, in Acts chapter 15 is a little bit graphic, nothing too crazy or anything, but there's some graphic stuff going on, and so just be prepared for that as we open God's Word um, and look in. So we're going to begin in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse number 1. This is while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, and so I'll pause there and just tell you what has happened. They've been on this journey. They've gone about 1,500 miles, as we said earlier, and now they're back to where they started in Antioch, this church that sent them out, this church that's been praying for them and supporting them, and they've come back to that church in Antioch. So there they are in Antioch, and the Scripture goes on to say, Some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. How they got in with them and started teaching, I don't know. I don't know if they said, hey, can we hang out at your house and teach you? Or if there was a class they put on. Don't know on how it happened because what they began to teach was incredible. Um, and when I say incredible, not in a good way. The scripture goes on to tell us that they taught these um, people, and here's what they taught them. Verse 1, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what these guys were doing is they were coming in saying that they were followers of Jesus too, 
but they were tacking on to the gospel of the death and the burial and the resurrection. And they were bringing with them the Jewish tradition and faith according to the Old Testament that all males had to be circumcised in order to identify with God as one of his people. Circumcision in this day that we're talking about a couple thousand years ago was not a common practice among the Gentiles. And so think about what they're saying for just a second as they are ending up in these cities where mostly Gentiles live, and they're saying to the men that if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. You can't be an insider. You can't be a part of the church. You can't experience salvation. Um, Churches have different things in place for church membership, different ways that you go about that, but I've never heard of a church requiring surgery for you to get in. Uh, If you can imagine, the new members class probably only had women and kids sign up. Dads are outside in the car saying, I'll just let you go in. I don't know if I'm ready to become a Christian. Let me know when you're done. And so Paul and Barnabas have been preaching that you have to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus to be saved. And now these guys come along and say, you have to be circumcised to be saved. Verse number two, Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. There are times when it is right to engage in arguments. And I don't know if you've ever seen an argument that would be described by this word vehement or not. Um, If you have multiple kids, you may have seen them argue really bad. Maybe you've gotten mad enough at times that you've argued very intensely. This is a very intense argument, and this is definitely one of those times when we're talking about the way of salvation, the way to God, in which someone is coming along and preaching a different way other than Jesus. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were very much so uh, right in their anger and in their arguing and in their disagreement with them. It goes on here in verse number 2 to say, Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. And so these apostles would have been men that Jesus appointed in his ministry to be leaders in this Jesus movement and ultimately in the church. And these guys had a season of time in the New Testament time in which they had a lot of authority and they had a lot of important role in the church. And then also here talks about elders. And elders here means pastors. In most of the New Testament, when you see the word elders in the context of the New Testament church, we're talking about pastors. And in this instance, you could say apostles and pastors. And so they went back to the church at Jerusalem where everything got started with this debate and with this question to settle it once and for all. So, Verse number three, the church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and that would have been Paul and Barnabas and some others, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. And so I don't know about you, but I like for people to be happy. I like for people to be glad. I like for people to rejoice, especially in Jesus. And if I am Paul and Barnabas on my way back to Jerusalem to deal with something very, very difficult, and I find some people that are just all about Jesus, and they're like, yay, Gentiles, people of all kinds of shapes, forms, and races are being saved, I would have been very tempted just to hang out there And to enjoy uh, that time. But they go on and they do the hard thing and they continue their journey on into Jerusalem. Verse number four. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. 
They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. And if you don't know much about the Pharisees, if you read the Gospels, um, Jesus interacts with them a lot. Um, In early New Testament period of time, the Pharisees were uh, a sect of religious leaders amongst the Jewish people. They were kind of the elite of the elite. Uh, They were very powerful. They had a lot of influence. Um, Their position was huge. They had a lot of wealth about them as well. And they would claim and um, consistently brag about how well they followed the law. In fact, they thought they followed the law better than anyone else. And they would point out to you how you didn't follow the law. And so Jesus went back and forth debating with these guys and many times rebuking these guys who were Pharisees who were trying to act like they were good enough for God to accept them. And so these Pharisees were kind of like Klingons or the Siths, if you will, and they were always out trying to destroy the Christian movement. And now we here have a group of them that it says are believers, and they're in the church, but they're Pharisees, so there's this tension in them, and there is this um, angst in them of who they were and what they did, and now following Jesus and what that looks like. And the first moment they get the chance to stand up in public in the church and say, yeah, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow the whole law, they jump on it. And so here we have these guys saying you've got to follow the law, including circumcision. We think about the law in the Old Testament. A lot of times people just think about Ten Commandments. Well, there was way more than that. In fact, there were over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. And then you tack on to that all of the oral teachings and oral laws that would have come out over time that the Pharisees and other religious leaders would have added to the law to kind of explain the law or show exactly how you do the law because they believed keeping the law was the way you got in good with God. It's this idea of moralistic deism, uh, that God is real and that God is good. And I would agree with both of those tenets, that God is real and that God is good. But then it would be followed up with saying, and for me to get to God, I've got to be good. And so they thought they were keeping the law, they were being good, and they were impressing God, and God was potentially giving them favor because of what they were doing. It's interesting to note that Paul, who now is coming back to have this debate and figure this whole thing out with this church, that before he became Paul, his name was Saul, and the religious bent that he had and the sect that he was a part of in Judaism was that he was a Pharisee. And so now he's coming back face-to-face, toe-to-toe, if you will, with the very group that he used to be a part of. Check out verse number 6. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Peter was the guy who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was the guy that hopped out of the boat and walked on water, took his eyes off Jesus, fell in the water, was constantly putting his foot in his mouth, but at the same time was constantly bold for Jesus, back and forth, back and forth. God grew him up and matured him, being a great leader in the early church, preached on the day of Pentecost, and God used him. And so now Peter's standing up to address them, and here's what he says in verse number 7. Brothers... You all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles 
so that they could hear the good news and believe. So he's reminding them of this massive moment in his life, in the life of Christianity and of the church, when God spoke to him and told him to go share the gospel with Gentiles. About 10 years has passed, and so you can imagine how many people had become believers since that 10-year mark. Um, You can imagine um, how many people had maybe heard that story from Peter but had forgotten it, how easy we are to forget um, things in our lives. And so Peter begins to remind them of what happened 10 years ago in him preaching the gospel to the Gentiles by the directive of God. And so... Going on now, verse number 8 says, God knows people's hearts, Peter says. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So as he talks about knowing their hearts, he's making it very plain that God is way more concerned with your inside than your outside. He's way more concerned with your heart than with what you wear or all the many other things that we could consider on the outside. And he says he looks at their hearts, and when these people um, are accepted, they're accepted by God as Gentiles, and he also gives them the same Holy Spirit. He goes on now in verse number 9. He made no distinction between us and them. Who? The Jews and the Gentiles. For he cleansed their hearts, the Gentiles' hearts, through faith. And so the Gentiles, he's saying, were rescued, redeemed, saved, made right with God the very same way that the Jews were made right with God, and that is by faith. And that principle of being rescued and saved by faith is an Old Testament truth and a New Testament truth. You read why Abraham became a follower of Jesus and why he became a man of God. It was by faith. Now verse number 10. So why are you now speaking to these people that have been teaching this got to be circumcised to be saved and these Pharisees? He says, why are you now challenging God? Challenging God. If you're always up for a challenge, that's cool, but I just want to suggest to you to not challenge God. Why? He's always right, and he always wins, and you want to be on his side, and he's encouraging them here not to be challenging God. He said, so why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke like the one you would put between a couple of oxen so that they go the direction you want them to, with a yoke that neither we nor ancestors were able to And so Peter's making it very clear that whether you were a Pharisee or not, a Jew or not, no matter who you were, if you've tried to follow the law, you just couldn't do it. You always came up short. There was something you just couldn't accomplish. There was something you couldn't do. You couldn't... um, hit the mark, if you will. You couldn't um, come up to the bar. You couldn't be perfect. And he was making that very, very plain to them. And that's actually the reason why the law was given. The law was given to us so that we would realize that we are imperfect. We'd realize that we are not holy. God is and we are not. In fact, the Mosaic law that's being spoken of here and being debated, both the moral law and the ritual law, was given to us Not so that by them we might be saved, but but that by them we would realize in us there is no salvation. He goes on now in verse number 11. makes this incredible declaration. 
one that believers who would claim the name of Jesus, I believe, would agree with, and we agree with here. It says, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. I'll read it again. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. And so what he's telling them is, if you're saved, you're saved the same way I am. If I'm saved, I'm saved the same way you are. If they're saved, they're saved the same way we are. And it's all by the undeserved grace of of the Lord Jesus. But these guys saying, oh, no, but you got to be circumcised. Oh, no, but you got to follow the law. They are teaching that you've got to do something to deserve God's grace, and that just totally just runs contrary to what grace is. Grace is something given to you that you do not deserve. And he's making it very plain here that salvation only comes by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Verse 12. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles on their journeys. When they had finished, James stood. Let's pause here for just a moment and let's understand who James is. There's a couple of James in the Bible. Uh, One James would have been one of the early followers of Jesus, would have been one of the um, original 12 disciples, and he was a a great man of God. But this James would actually have been the half-brother of Jesus. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother? What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the Son of God? And here he is growing up with him, and Jesus' room was always clean, and Jesus always did what his mom had asked him to do. He never disappointed them. Then before you know it, he grows up, and you're hearing talk of him being the Messiah. You hear rumors of him healing people and, and, and doing incredible miracles. And that's who James had to grow up around, and he was struggling hard with Jesus and who he claimed to be and who others claimed him to be. It wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus that James decided to believe and follow Jesus as the Son of God. But the resurrection changed everything for James, just as it should change everything for us, realizing that Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave through the resurrection. Well, now James has become this mature believer. He's a pastor, one of the elders in the church in Jerusalem. He's leading them uh, just as a pastor should the flock. And he stands up and does what pastors are supposed to do, and he leads uh, the church. And it says here in verse number uh, 13, when when they'd finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles, to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. James does what any good pastor does. He points people to the Word of God. And he looks into the book of Amos, which is from the Old Testament, reads an Old Testament prophecy to them that is being fulfilled before their very eyes. He reads, um, here in verse number 16 we'll read, and it comes from the book of Amos. He said, Afterward, I, meaning God, will return and restore the fallen house of David, meaning the Jewish people. I will rebuild, rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity, think about that for a moment, so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. 
he who made these things known so long ago. And so the word of God makes it plain all throughout the Old Testament, and yet the Jewish people really missed it. That their purpose as the chosen people of God was to make the name of God famous among the entire world so that everyone else by faith could become the children of God as well. But the Jewish people got really focused in on themselves. Uh, they made it um, all about them. Uh, they pushed away the Gentiles. They, they didn't really point them to Jesus hardly ever. And this passage is saying, that's my purpose and I'm going to get that done. And he's doing it now in what we're reading in the New Testament through the church. And he's using the church now to make this happen. Look now in verse number 19. And this is just so, so important. And we're going to read it and then we're going to come back to it. And we're going to look at it a little bit more. Verse number 19. It says, so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So there's all this debate. They should get circumcised. No, they shouldn't. They should follow law. No, they shouldn't. Peter tells his story about how God used him to present the way of salvation by grace to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas tell how God is using them. James reads the scripture, and then he makes this very, very clear judgment that the church should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God, in particular here, for the Gentiles, enforcing them to be circumcised and or to follow the law. Then he goes on in verse number 20, and we'll come back to verse 19 in verse number 20. He said, instead, we should write and tell them who the new believers that are out there among the churches of the Gentiles. Tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming Blood. Now, that's a strange list if you've never really studied the Word of God very much or don't know much about um, Jewish culture. It's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of, whoa, what are those things? I want to remind you, when they were making this judgment, they didn't have what we have today. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't get to look over into the book of Romans and see what God had to say about what they could and what they could not do. They didn't have all of the epistles that were written to the churches that clarify so many things for us today. And so they were making a judgment for that day in that context. The most important one is that you don't have to do anything. Uh, Nothing is required except for faith to be saved and then He's saying, if you get saved, these are wise things for you to do, and we think that you ought to uh, be about uh, these things. And he says to abstain from eating food offered to idols and from sexual immorality. And so both of these first two, whether you realize it or not, are having to do with their culture in that day, which was just obsessed and overridden with idol worship. All kinds of feasts would take place. Um, and things would be eaten, sacrificed, and all kinds of food would have been happening that would have been happening in idol worship. And he's like, man, we shouldn't have anything to do with idol worship. We shouldn't today have anything to do with idol worship. And so it just makes sense for him to say, don't have anything to do with eating those meats. Don't be a part of those feasts. Just don't do it. That's not who we are anymore. And then he talks about sexual immorality, which you could take a general approach to that if you wanted to. We definitely should not be involved in sexual immorality, but the specific focus of that in, the, in, in this context is the way that they would have worshipped their idols when they gathered to worship. 
unbelievable, unspeakable things would be done sexually as an act of worship to these false gods. And he says, that's not who we are now. That's not what we're going to do now. And that's, that's just unacceptable. So don't be doing that stuff. And then these last two are really about just being able to have fellowship with one another, the Jews and the Gentiles. And he tells them uh, these two things that would have gone back into Jewish culture and Jewish tradition um, and just saying it wouldn't be wise to do these things. So it says, so um, we're going to abstain from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood, which I think we'd all agree is kind of weird anyway. And so that was the decision that they made on this day, narrowing it down to four things. And you say, well, there's still four things. Well, it's way less than like over 600 things of the law. And none of these things were having to be done for them to be uh, saved. It's just how you were supposed to live once you were saved. So can you imagine if this would have gone the other way? Can you imagine if James would have stood and said, hey, just want to let you know from this point forward, every Gentile that believes in Jesus to be saved must be circumcised. It would have changed the course of Christianity and the church, it would have changed the course of history. I don't think that we would find and know and follow Jesus today if they would have gone for this false doctrine of salvation by earning the favor of God, this salvation by works. So I want us to look back at verse number 19 and really get to just the focus of James and his declaration and where he says, and it's my judgment that we, the church, the believers, the Jewish believers, uh, we could take this into our context. And our, the church believes we should not make it difficult. The word difficult very easily is defined as hard. We shouldn't make it hard. Circumcision for a grown man who's not been circumcised is difficult. It is challenging. It is hard. And he's saying we shouldn't do that. And so as the church, we're not after conformity, we're after transformation. Man can conform, only the Holy Spirit of God can transform. And we're about a relationship with Jesus that changes us from the inside out. We're not about a moralistic religion in which we conform into someone else's way of doing things. So I want to ask you this question as we think about this as believers today. What are we doing to make it difficult for those who are turning to God? I'll repeat that question. What are we doing to make it difficult for those who are turning to God? I want you to imagine a ladder, if you will. And we normally get on a ladder, we get on the first rung, we take a step, we get on the second rung, we take a step, and we, we climb up and we eventually get there and there we are. A lot of times as believers, a lot of times as a church, if we're not careful, we remove those lower rungs out of the ladder. And we're kind of standing on top, and we know where the book of Ephesians is, and, and we know how to talk, and we know what to wear, and we know where to go, and we know all the ins and outs of how we're supposed to act and how we're supposed to be as believers. And if we're not careful, we remove those bottom rungs, and we're up here, and we're wondering why everybody else can't join us. And I would just say to you that potentially we're making it hard for people to come to know God because we have removed the rungs of grace 
and of truth, and most importantly, of Jesus, who is the only way up to God. It's not through anything that it's not through anything that we can do. And so I want to give you this big idea, and that is this. We should do the difficult things as believers. We should do the difficult things to make it easy for people who are turning to God. We should do the difficult things to make it easy for people who are turning to God. Well, you may be thinking, well, what kind of difficult stuff are you talking about? Before we talk about the what and describe what difficult looks like on our part, let's talk about the why. Because we're not going to be willing to do the what until we understand the why. And the why is so huge. It is so massive. Why should we do the difficult things? Because we believe that the gospel is for everybody. For everybody. No matter where they come from, no matter what they have done, no matter uh, the mistakes they've made, no matter the sins that they have committed, no matter what their skin color is, no matter where they live, no matter whose family they're a part of, no matter how they grew up, we believe that the gospel is for everybody. Therefore, we should do the difficult thing so others can come to know Jesus. We should make the difficult decisions so that others can hear about Jesus. Well, what are you talking about? This whole difficult and, and what should we do? It sounds generic. Well, maybe it is, but when God starts revealing specific things to us or to you, I'm praying that our hearts will be ready and prepared already to say yes to doing the hard thing, whatever that may be. Why are we willing to do the hard thing? Because we believe the gospel is for everybody, and we believe that there's only one way to God, and his name is Jesus. And if we're putting roadblocks in between people and Jesus, they're never going to get to Jesus. Now, when people get to Jesus, they've got to wrestle with, am I going to place faith in him? Am I going to trust him to forgive me? Am I going to be willing to confess my sin? Am I going to be willing to change my direction in life? And we're okay with that struggle. We're okay with that tension. But what we're not okay with is making it difficult for people to get to Jesus. If we're not careful, we think we do the hard thing by inviting somebody to church, but then we put expectations on them, and we make it hard for them to dress right, look right, and act right before they even come to church. we got to make it easy for people to get to Jesus. It's important to notice what's said here in verse number 19 in this word, Gentiles who are turning to God. This word turning is the same word that we get the word repent from. This is not uh, just some flippant word. This is a very intense word. And so when people get to Jesus, we believe that they're going to repent of their sin. We believe that they're going to turn. We believe that they're going to change direction. So, again, we're okay with people struggling with Jesus. Let's just make sure he's the main thing and that he's all that matters. Let's make sure people can get to Jesus. So my challenge to church people, the people who grew up like me in the local church, you learned all the stories. You potentially know what flannel graph is. If people that you know don't know what flannel graph is, don't worry about it. If it helps you share Jesus, then go for it. But we grew up, we, let's put the rungs back on the ladder, the rungs of grace and of truth. And again, most importantly, 
of Jesus because he is our only way to God. Let's go with him. Let's share him. Let's show him. Let's teach him. Let's help others find and follow find and follow him. There's an old saying, you may have heard it, I don't know, but it's this idea that our job as fishers of men is to catch them and it's God's job to clean them. And so we are going to believe that as we are making it as easy as possible to bring people to Jesus, when they place their faith in him, turning from their sin, repenting of their sin, that God can and God will miraculously forgive them, cleanse them, change them, set their life on a new direction in which we'll be able to teach them all the things of Jesus throughout the New Testament and how they can now live their lives in a righteous way for his honor and glory because they've experienced his grace. Well, as James makes this decision and declares it to the church, the church follows that direction. They celebrate this decision. They let the word be known throughout all the churches that this was the decision, that we're not going to make it hard We're not going to make it hard for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And they celebrated it. The church flourished in unity, and it grew all throughout the world. And so my prayer is that we, God's people, this church, that will have unity around the person of Jesus and flourish for his namesake and the salvation of others. Let's pray. Father, I bow before you right now. I'm asking you to help us, your believers, and your followers do the hard things. I don't know what that may be necessarily, but I pray that we would know why we need to do those hard things so that before we're even asked to do those hard things, we're already committed to do it because we want to make it easy for people to come to know you, Jesus, because you are the only way to God. I pray for anyone hearing this today, that they would understand that the way to God is Jesus and that they too can believe in him and his death and his burial and his resurrection and that they can be forgiven of their sin, all their sin, and that they can be saved and that they can be changed forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.